Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts. We're getting close to the end here. And uh, this is part 55. We're going to be still looking at Paul's views of the resurrection during his trials there and comparing it to common beliefs and misbeliefs today uh, in philosophies known as or theologies known as dispensationalism that we've talked about so forth. So let's open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, that you have come to us to give us the good news and that uh, we can study your word. And uh, we thank thank you for giving Mark uh, the insight and the persistence to study this and prepare our lessons. And uh, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Amen. Mark. Yes, good evening. It's great to be back with everyone. We've spent considerable time going through the trials of Paul, demonstrating that he had a spiritual view of resurrection, which eventually put him at odds with the physical view of uh, you know, corpses being resuscitated that the Pharisees had held. And we recall the going through the entire Gospel of John, where Christ is continually contrasting the proper spiritual interpretation of his words and of the Hebrew scriptures with the people that were trying to interpret these things physically, carnally, or as some people call it today, literally. But uh, the Bible is literature, and literature uses figurative language frequently. And Jesus, well, we're told in one place, he spoke nothing without using a parable or a symbolism. He spoke nothing without using symbolism. So, it stands to reason that Paul, after his conversion, would would switch from the old carnal physical view of the Pharisees in which he had been raised to the spiritual view that was Christ, that the entire Gospel of John demonstrates to us over and over and over again is the proper view. And so this sets Paul at odds, not only with the Pharisees of his time, but with our dispensational Zionist friends, of today who insist upon that same literal physical interpretation of scriptures that the Pharisees of the first century uh, had. Now, if we go to Paul's letter to the Romans, we talked last week about how uh, <clears throat> that the, the non-Judean Christians in Rome had already written off all of the Judeans because they 
were familiar with the scriptures that had pronounced a doom upon the Judean nation there in the first century. It it helps a lot to be looking at a timeline that I drew uh, while we talk about these things. I think I've sent that image to Tom. Do you have that uh, posted somewhere where people can see that timeline? Thomas? Well, if not, I'll, I'll send a, a new, a better version, uh, and we'll ask uh, Tom to get that posted because it, it it makes a big difference. I'm I'm going through the same material to a a live uh, class. Not that y'all aren't alive, but uh, <laughs> but you know, to a group uh, a group of it varies from 30 to 100 people from week to week, and uh, the, having the timeline there to look at as we talk about these things. Uh, makes it much, much easier to see how that the modern religious teaching is so confused and convoluted and and the the biblical real timeline is so much simpler, so much easier. And and of course when we talk about the resurrection, we have Christ's bodily resurrection in the first century which demonstrated his spiritual resurrection, the fact that he overcame sin and became alive to God again after taking on himself all of our sins. Uh, you, you remember that power that went out from him when the one woman with an issue of blood touched the hem of his garment. He felt that power go out from him. Imagine how much power went out from him when he took on himself uh, all of our sin to cure that. So his his physical bodily resurrection demonstrated his ability to be spiritually alive uh, to God the Father, uh, even after having borne our sin. And we have that resurrection, which we all agree took place in the first century. And then, Paul, if we go through Romans, we're going to look at Romans 11 here, we're going to see that Paul isn't talking about some future event where the graveyards are all emptied. He's talking simply about being freed from the law, because the law produced sin, and sin produced spiritual death or separation from God. And so the only way to cure the spiritual death that had cursed all of Israel was to get rid of the law. Now, in in the 10th chapter, and those chapters, remember, are not part of Paul's original writing, but they're just artificial divisions that were added uh, I think less than 200 years ago. Um, in, in the 10th chapter of Romans, Paul is is just acknowledging and moaning over the disbelief of the Judean people, how that they would not believe, how that the law would not save them. He quotes two different parts of the Song of Moses, which we've looked at, back Deuteronomy 30, 31, 32, where God predicts the last days of physical Israel and predicted that they would do something so terrible that there would be no forgiveness of it. And, of course, we know that that had to be the unlawful uh, arrest, conviction, and execution of the Christ, even when the Roman law said he must go free. The Judean people willfully took the responsibility for that on their own heads and uh, fulfilled all the predictions made back in the Song of Moses 
back there in Deuteronomy. So Paul has quoted two different parts of that in Romans 10. And then that leads us up here to Romans 11, where he's, and remember, he's speaking to these uh, non-Judeans in Rome who have already written off all of the Judean nationals in the synagogue communities there. And Paul asks this rhetorical question, has God then cast away his people? Let it never be, for I am also an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. God did not cast away his people whom he knew before. And then he quotes uh, from uh, 1 Kings where Elijah is pleading with God against Israel. Lord, your prophets they did kill, your altars they dug down, and I was left alone, and they seek my life. But what did the divine answer him? I left to myself 7,000 men who did not bow a knee to Baal. Hopefully we all remember that fascinating story uh, there. Uh, this is after uh, Elijah, I believe, had, had slain all the prophets of Baal and won the contest and so on. And then uh, they're trying to kill him. And he thinks he's the last one left, the last righteous man in Israel left. So Paul is here introducing to us this incredibly important concept of the righteous remnant of Israel. There was a righteous remnant not visible in the time of Elijah. And then continuing in verse 5, Paul says, So then also in the present time, a remnant according to the choice of grace has come into being. And if by grace no more of works, you know, and specifically he's referring, of course, to the works of the law. Otherwise, grace becomes no longer grace. If it is of works, it is no more grace. Otherwise, the work is no longer work. What then? What Israel seeks, it did not obtain, but the chosen did obtain it, and the rest were hardened. So, there's, there's a chosen remnant within physical Israel at, as Paul was writing this letter in the first century. But the rest, the vast majority of physical Israel, were hardened. And remember, as we went through Acts, we pointed out how it was intentionally written to parallel the Exodus. The children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, and God with great power and signs and wonders led them out of Egypt. And now, during the book of Acts, we've seen God is leading this righteous remnant out from physical Israel who has become spiritually Egypt or Sodom. But the people who are supposed to be the people of God have become the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. We've demonstrated that throughout the book. It, it really starts in Acts 13 in Antioch of Pisidia, uh, where the Judean members of the synagogue got incredibly jealous, and the, the, the foreign people there brought the whole town out the next Saturday to hear Paul speak. And this pattern continues through Asia, through Galatia, through Macedonia, through Achaia, uh, lower Greece. The foreigners attached to the synagogue communities receive the gospel with great rejoicing, and the Judeans, just a few, a remnant, believe 
and the vast majority become hardened. They become jealous by these foreigners being allowed into God's kingdom as first-class citizens. And that you can go back and read Romans 10 where Paul talks more about that. So the foreigners have obtained what Israel sought after. Well, what has Israel been seeking after? They've been seeking after resurrection, the hope of Israel. That's what Paul has been saying all through his trials, that he preaches nothing but the hope of Israel. And I would contend that's what Israel is seeking after, is resurrection. They know they are spiritually dead. They know that the Holy of Holies in the temple has been empty for 500 years. God's throne is not there. God's presence never came into their temple. He no longer dwells in their midst. They're no longer his chosen people. They are spiritually dead, separated from God. In verse 8 here, back to Romans 11, Paul quotes Isaiah, and again more out of the Song of Moses. God gave them a spirit of deep sleep, eyes not to see and ears not to hear. And then quotes from some of the Psalms in verse 9, David said, Let their table become for a snare and a trap and for a stumbling block and a repayment to them. Let their eyes be darkened not to see and their back always bowing. Paul continues, Did they stumble that they might fall? Let it not be. But by their slipping away came salvation to the nations to provoke them to jealousy. And he's he's, uh, paraphrasing the Song of Moses again. In Deuteronomy 32, God promised that in Israel's final generation, he would bring the nations into Israel to provoke physical Israel to jealousy. And Paul viewed that as his job description. He, as the apostle to the nations, was actually the final hope of the remnant of Israel, that the righteous remnant would be saved. And so, you know, we know that since this was happening, as Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, we know that the Song of Moses is being fulfilled. We know then that this is the final generation of physical Israel. We know that the remnant will be saved and the vast majority of them will be destroyed. And, of course, this is not at all what modern dispensationalist Zionists teach at all. And so, picking up in verse 13, Paul says, uh, you know, my job is to be the ambassador or apostle to the nations. If somehow I can provoke to jealousy my flesh, my, in other words, his physical kinsmen, and may save some of them. See that word, some of them, in verse 14. For if their casting away is of the reconciliation of the world, what is the reception if not life from the dead? See, he's specifically talking about resurrection here. He's talking about that this remnant will be made alive. All of Israel has been dead for generations, but this righteous remnant within physical Israel will be resurrected from the dead. And, and you know, he's very clear about the timing. This is all supposed to happen at the same time. The nations coming in is the resurrection of Israel from the dead. 
Well, there's a lot of deep stuff here, but too many people read Romans completely out of context of, of what the situation is as Paul is writing this, who he's writing to, the urgency of the situation, picking up here in verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, so that you might not be wise within yourself that hardness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the nations comes in. So all Israel shall be saved, even as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. That's Isaiah chapter 59. So, the sin problem that the law of Moses created brought about spiritual death of the entire nation. And, of course, Daniel, which we've gone through, uh, talks about this same thing, the prophecy of weeks. It's talking about the end of sin in relation to uh, the 70th week. The 69th week is when Messiah is cut off. The 70th week is when Israel's sin problem will be solved. Well, that's the same thing that Paul's talking about here, solving their sin problem here in Romans 11, verse 27, as he's quoting from Isaiah 59. And this is tied to when the foreign nations will be brought in to God's kingdom. Ungodliness will depart from Jacob when the nations come in, and he will take away sins at that time. So that all of these books of prophecy are extremely consistent with the book of Acts, and Paul's letters are extremely consistent with what we see there in the book of Acts. So our dispensational friends, they read this, and they, they think that this time fullness of the Gentiles is still in the future. Of course, they've made hundreds of false predictions about it, uh, happening, people told Mussolini that he was bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles because he was, you know, the last Caesar of the Roman Empire, and he believed that he actually made a statue of himself, calling himself the last Caesar. I mean, it just it becomes ludicrous, and they believe that all of physical Israel will still be saved. And they totally miss Paul's point in this about the righteous remnant. Israel is going to be saved just because the righteous remnant within Israel is saved, not all of the evil, disbelieving you know, part. And we've seen this throughout the history of Israel. Remember, after the Exodus, the one entire generation died in the wilderness because of their disbelief and, and grumbling. And only a tiny remnant, you know, were spared um, two men of that generation, Caleb and Joshua. And, you know, it goes on, the Assyrian invasion, just a tiny remnant left behind. The Babylonian invasion, just a remnant left, remnant protected by God in Babylon. And then just a tiny remnant of them actually came out of Babylon and went back to rebuild uh, the nation in Palestine uh, there. So the remnant is a part of all of Israel's history, we, you know, just like we started off talking about the days of Elijah. 
that was just a small, tiny, righteous remnant. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And he's pleading with the these non-Judean Christians in Rome to not write them off because Paul still has to get there and preach the gospel to the synagogues so that the righteous remnant there can be spared. And so they're supposed to, you know, follow the rules, not eat offensive food. They're supposed to pay the temple tax. All of these things that are completely misinterpreted today out of the context of what the purpose of Paul's letter was. Mark, or why would, do you think, Paul then leave us with this statement, all Israel will be saved, which seems to sort of contradict what he later said, or said before and after. Is that something that was intended? Is it an accident? Did men tamper with the scriptures afterwards, or why are we confused by that statement? (laughs) Well, I can't answer whether anybody tampered with it or not, uh, although, you know, we are finding there has been a lot of tampering with the ancient Greek texts and and things, but I, I don't have any specific knowledge of that. Again, the confusion just seems to be taking that verse as a standalone without looking at the greater context, which I've tried to establish in Romans 10 and Romans 11 that he's talking about the righteous remnant that would be spared just as in the days of Elijah at the time when the nations would be drawn in to uh, God's restored kingdom. So You've done a very good job of presenting that. I'm not suggesting it's not understandable what you said. I just wondered it would make it so much nicer had that little phrase not been there. Romans 11 is extremely confusing to most people because, again, nearly all the scholarly work written on it for the last 300 years has completely ignored the context in which Paul is writing that letter. And so you have 40 different views that are all wrong. And out of that, the dispensationalists have just jumped in there and said, this means literally what he's saying, all Israel shall be saved when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And since this hasn't physically happened yet, we know that it is still in the future. And and furthermore, it's, it includes political, physical Israel. Oh, yes, absolutely. They Because they do not even acknowledge the existence of such a thing as spiritual Israel. Okay, good. Their method of interpreting the Bible demands a physical interpretation unless you are forced to introduce symbolic language to you know to make sense and and again they their interpretation of the bible also says that each verse can stand alone so their 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 whole method basically says we thumb our nose at the original intent of the writer and we thumb our nose at the context of the of the passage. Great, thanks. All right, so we have a little parallel back when we studied uh, the Gospel of John. If you remember, Jesus wanted to set up the kingdom. Well, the Judean people in Galilee, they wanted to restore the kingdom, right? And they offered him the kingdom. Do you all remember that? And what did Jesus reply to their offer? to make him 
they wanted to make him their king after he had fed the multitudes. My kingdom is not of this earth. Yeah, he, he rejected their offer because they were after a physical carnal kingdom. And he was trying to establish a spiritual kingdom, just as you stated, a kingdom not of this world, not physical. And then the Judean people rejected him after he first rejected them. There's kind of a parallel here. Paul is expecting an imminent resurrection here in Romans 10 and 11. Well, the Pharisees, they were expecting a very soon resurrection because they knew that when Messiah came would be the resurrection. The resurrection was the restoration of the fellowship between God and Israel where God would return to dwell amongst his people. That's, uh, you know, they viewed that as the coming of the kingdom, and, the, and they viewed that as the time of the resurrection. So they were both agreed as to the timing of it, but they were disagreed as to the nature, just like the Galileans and Jesus. But it's an interesting point. The coming of the kingdom and the resurrection are one and the same. They are bound together like Siamese twins. They cannot be separated. They are linked together thematically in all of the prophecies. And Paul's disagreement with the Judean leadership was not about when things were to occur, but about the nature of how all these things would be fulfilled. Jesus and Paul agreed with the Judeans about the timing but they disagreed, they both disagreed over the nature of things. They were promoting this spiritual fulfillment. So hopefully uh, last time I showed that the passage in Second Timothy 2, that where Paul is condemning Hymenaeus and Philetus for preaching the resurrection had occurred already, it doesn't make any sense if they were preaching that all the graves had already been opened and that this was tied in with the end of the world, which is how so many fundamentalist uh, Christian sects and denominations view the resurrection. But it makes perfect sense if the resurrection was the spiritual restoration of fellowship of God's people to the Father, and that that coincided with bringing in all the foreign nations into the kingdom of God. Uh, which is, of course, what the whole book of Acts is about. It is the story of the bringing in of all of the nations into the restored kingdom uh, of Israel, the throne of David, Mount Zion, the new temple made of living stones, etc., etc. And again, this view will contradict many, many creeds and many, many traditions that go back hundreds and hundreds of years. But our appeal you know, needs to be to the scriptures understood in their proper intent and in their proper context, not to the traditions of man, and certainly not to this new, horrible, murderous tradition known as dispensational premillennialism or Christian Zionism. Amen. Another interesting point, which I, we've touched on, but we need to really grind this in here. 
because again, our our dispensational friends they go back to these prophecies in the Old Testament, and they say, "Well, see, none of this has been fulfilled yet. It's all got to still be in the future, and it all has to involve uh, physical Israel." There are many, many of these prophecies that talk about the rejoining of Judah and Israel in the last days. In Jeremiah, the third chapter, Yahweh is talking to uh, the prophet here, and he says, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every green tree and has fornicated there. And after she's done all this, I said she will return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I watched, when for all the causes for which the apostate Israel committed adultery, I sent her away and gave her a writing of divorce, or a bill of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she also went and fornicated. And, well, this gets kind of graphic here, almost pornographic. But uh, skipping down to verse 11, he says, Yahweh said to me, the apostate Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. And basically the story is, is that Judah deserved to be divorced and banished far more than the northern kingdom of Israel. But God did not do this because of his promises to David and Moses and everyone else to bring forth the Messiah out of the tribe of Judah. And so God tolerated and put up with her spiritual adultery. And this has reached full flower in the first century, where they paid more importance to an empty temple than they did to God himself or to the word of God. And when God himself appeared to them, they laughed at him, they mocked him, they rejected him, and then finally... You know, they killed him. And so the two kingdoms were divided back in the days of Solomon's son. And I think we've talked about that, you know, in a previous lesson. Jeremiah just 3 just confirms that God had divorced the northern kingdom for adultery. Now, in Ezekiel 37, which we talked about as the Valley of Dry Bones, which is really Paul's vision of the resurrection of Israel. The second part of that, remember, begins at verse 16 and says, And you, son of man, take one stick to yourself and write on it for Judah and his companions, and take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then bring them near one to another to you as one stick, and they have become one in your hand. And when the sons of the people speak to you, and they ask, won't you tell us what these mean? Tell them, so says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, and I will put them with him, and the stick of Judah, and I will make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. And then verse 21, so says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from amongst the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and will bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be for a king to them. They will not be two nations anymore. So that in the last days, 
these, the two that were divided, the one that was scattered like seed into all the nations of the earth will be regathered. And this is uh, depicted uh, in a diagram on, on that timeline picture that hopefully we can get posted if we don't have it up there right now. But this is a picture, again, not of the physical restoration of the physical nation of Israel, but of the spiritual restoration of Israel in the days of Christ and the apostles. We go to Amos 5, for instance. God writes to the northern kingdom, Listen to this word I am lifting up against you. A dirge, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen and will not rise again. She lies forsaken in her land, and there is no one to raise her up. And then he goes on to talk about just a remnant that might survive. But there was a certain finality to this divorce and this destruction and this scattering of the northern kingdom. They were not to be restored physically. We go to Hosea 1, where the prophet went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, who conceived and bore him a son. And Yahweh said to him, Call his name Jezreel, or God will sow. For yet in a little while I will call to account the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and I will cause the kingdom of the house of Israel to cease. And in that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And then she conceived again and bore a daughter, and he said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will not again have mercy on the house of Israel. I will completely take them away. So uh, Israel physically was utterly and completely destroyed for all time in those days, around 700 B.C., but yet the prophets are full of this promise of this restoration. But we know that it is to be a spiritual restoration. We go back to the Gospel of John uh, that we looked at some time ago. In the fourth chapter, Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the well of Jacob. And he was weary from journeying and he sat there at the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came out to draw water. And, of course, it's totally amazing that a Judean man would speak to a woman at all, but to speak to a Samaritan woman. The Samaritans were the mongrel uh, race that took over this land that had belonged to the, the banished northern kingdom. And they, in the book of Acts, they serve as a proxy for the scattered northern kingdom of Israel. And, you know, remember back in Acts one eight, Jesus' plan was that they would preach first to Jerusalem and Judea, then they would go to Samaria, and then they would go to the uttermost ends of the earth. So the Samaritans kind of filled that proxy role for the restoration of Israel. And, you know, they were joined right in with the Judeans, and this is like the two being made one, the two sticks being made one that we read about there in Ezekiel 37. And there's many, many other prophecies that we could go to. But in the Old Testament, God predicted the time when God was going to restore Israel. The two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, would be rejoined back with the ten. And this would happen under the Messiah. All of them talk about when there would be one king to rule over them. This is David's throne uh, being restored. 
And, oh, Jeremiah, we didn't read that far in Jeremiah 3, but he specified there that they wouldn't even remember the Ark of the Covenant anymore. In other words, the old form of worship would be completely gone away. Now, tragically, our dispensational Zionist friends, they believe that when the kingdom is finally established, Judah and Israel will be physically reunited and that all peoples of the earth will start traveling back to physical Jerusalem to worship again. But yet, here in John 4, Jesus tells the woman, she wants to know because they thought they had the right mountain to worship God in. She asks, uh, beginning in verse 19, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers in this mountain did worship, and you, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we're supposed to worship. And now listen to this answer. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, there's coming an hour when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship, we Judeans, worship what we know, for salvation is of the Judeans. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. He is spirit, and the ones worshiping Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, you know, he specifically says there that they will not, when they worship in spirit, they will not be worshiping in physical Jerusalem. So, I just don't know how the dispensational Zionists keep the Gospel of John in their Bibles. They really need to take scissors and cut most of it out because it totally destroys the foundation of their really bad religious system. Mark, how do rabbis handle these Old Testament condemnations that are so final? And, um, of course, they claim to follow the prophets. And yet, what do they do when they come to these pronouncements by God against Israel and Judea. What's our answer to that? Well, I don't have the opportunity to visit with many rabbis. When I lived in Phoenix, I actually did meet a few and and get to talk to them. And uh, one that I visited with was in absolute denial. You know, he said, oh, no, God never condemns Israel in the scriptures. (laughs) Well, uh, that's about uh, 80% of the Old Testament. Now, We know that the anti-Zionist Jews of today are pretty humble, and they admit that the temple was all destroyed because of the sins of Israel, and they admit that they were a sinful and unworthy people. So they tend to embrace the reality of it. But the Zionists uh, live in a a state of denial. As do the Reformed Jews uh, that constitute 85% of all the... American Jews, I suppose. I mean, they would they would just deny it and say it never happened. Uh, yeah, I just I can't I don't have enough firsthand knowledge to really you know get a feel for the the trend there. I would think there would be you know views, but but again, how many are real Bible scholars in the uh, in yeah. Reform or conservative? I mean, how many even bother uh, in Reform Judaism? The Bible is really just a bunch of stories and myths. Mm-hmm. like it would be in the Unitarian Church or, or, or something. So 
and they probably are the largest group of Jews they, in the country. They are, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, again, God is restoring Israel uh, in the book of Acts. The call of the kingdom is to gather in the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is, is the one and the same as bringing in the nations. Israel had been scattered 700 B.C. into the nations, so by bringing in the nations, God is bringing in this righteous remnant of Israel, and at the same time, he's saving the righteous remnant of Judah, as Paul describes there in the book of Romans. The remnant of Old Covenant Israel are now becoming the core and foundation of the true spiritual Israel of God. Philip, uh, earlier in the book of Acts, went into Samaria, and uh, he's called them into the kingdom, but did he raise a physical army and issue real physical swords to them so they could fight against Rome to establish the kingdom? Absolutely not. He was not setting up a physical kingdom in Samaria. Paul is not setting up a physical kingdom in Rome or any of the other places that he's visited in the book of Acts. They are setting up the spiritual kingdom that Jesus talked about in John 4 and everywhere else in the Gospels when he talks about it. Going back, Paul on trial here in Acts 26, verse 5, he's before Agrippa, which is he's kind of at an informal hearing. He's given some of his own background in, in learning amongst the Judeans. And he says, knowing me, uh, his, his countrymen, knowing me from before, if they will testify that according to the most exact sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now for the hope of the promise made to the fathers by God, I have stood judged, to which our twelve tribes intently night and day serving do hope to come, concerning which that hope I am accused, King Agrippa, by the Judeans. Why is it judged incredible with you if God raises the dead? So, again, he's talking about an imminent resurrection. He's talking about all the 12 tribes being joined back together, which would fulfill all of these prophecies. And they're all waiting for this hope, the hope made to the fathers. And this hope is the resurrection, uh, that they would stand eternally uh, in the presence of God. And, of course, that's really the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is exactly the same thing as the promises made to the fathers in the book of Genesis and all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the same as all the promises made by the prophets to Israel over hundreds of years. It is the solution to sin so that we can stand in the presence of God for eternity. And this is so, it's, it's so simple, but yet it, it's so different than what so many people have heard that, that people just have a hard time really seeing 
the clear simplicity of the gospel and the unity of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, all talking about this simple truth, which, you know, it wasn't that simple for what Jesus had to do to make it so. But it was God's eternal purpose to create this perfect spiritual kingdom where we could all be together as one family, ruling with God, allowing God to dwell within our hearts, to have his presence here on earth. We can be his hands and his feet, his voice, to spread his dominion amongst the sick, ailing, and corrupt uh, nations uh, of the world. And so I suggest that this is really the great lesson from the trials of Paul uh, towards the end of the book of Acts. And we spent a little bit of time emphasizing this, but it's so important to see how so many have gone so wrong and have made something so complicated, confusing of the simple gospel of Christ. And now we'll go to the conclusion here of Acts 27 and 28. 27 is really just a travel log. We'll briefly go through that, and then we'll see why Acts wraps up the way it does. It doesn't make any sense for Acts to end the way it does if the dispensational view or the amillennial view uh, is correct. But we'll see that it makes perfect sense with how we've been looking at Acts, how it does wrap up there in Acts 28 when Paul finally finally makes it to Rome, which he's been trying to do for many, many years. And that's all I've got tonight. Resurrection. That's the key word there that we kind of trip over on our way to yeah. heaven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, you know, but John in the Gospel of John, after raising Lazarus, remember, Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Yeah. Yes. And so... Resurrection is not a different thing. Resurrection is Jesus Christ. He said so himself. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He is our resurrection. If we are joined to him, we have part in the resurrection. And it's not something still in the future to be grasped. If we are alive to him spiritually for eternity, I mean, why do we need our physical bodies uh, again after our physical life is over? Right. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. That was another insightful study. Well done. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small. Think big and press on towards the straight gate.